This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, Geraldine Dude with you, and a big welcome to Extra. It's just lovely to have you company each Monday. First up today, our September edition of A Foreign Affair. To walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts. I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Yes, welcome to another edition of A Foreign Affair, our monthly discussion about developments taking place on the international stage. This month, a good look at China, where big changes are taking place that are quite frankly baffling many in the West. Uh, This is a bit of a list I'm about to uh, go through, but I think some context really does help. Starting last October, when China suspended the IPO of Jack Ma's Ant Group, Beijing's been tightening the leash on its big tech companies and other powerful business interests. The country's $100 billion private tutoring sector has been hit particularly hard, as have, on the flip side, gaming companies. After strict new rules were introduced banning under-18s from playing video games for more than three hours a week, There have also been efforts to curb China's fandom culture, to restrict domestic companies from listing overseas, and of course strengthened regulation of China's red-hot real estate market, which contributed to the Evergrande saga that's been unfolding this week. All of this arrives amidst major geopolitical developments, the announcement of the trilateral AUKUS partnership, and China's bid to join the new trading alliance in our region with the terrible acronym, the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Ghastly. So, lots to discuss. And a bit differently this month, later you'll hear from Yun Zhang, who's director at the independent research organisation China Policy Centre based at the ANU, and Chris Buckley. He's the chief China correspondent for the New York Times. But first, let's hear from Kevin Rudd, who displayed all his considerable experience about China during a very insightful address to the Asia Society in New York earlier this month about what he sees as Xi Jinping's pivot to the state. Welcome back to the program, Mr Rudd. Good to be with you, Geraldine. Uh, Do you get the sense, because others are not entirely sure, that we're witnessing a significant shift in China at the moment that we don't fully grasp yet? Uh, Geraldine, I think we are, and it's uh, an inflection point which is a little different to the one we read about most in the international media, which is the change in China's external posture in the region and around the world. This is an inflection point in Chinese domestic politics and economics, and I best describe it as China moving to the left in its economic policy settings, moving to the left in terms of its um, politics, and uh, moving to the right, in fact, in terms of nationalism. This creates a different China to the one that we've had to deal with before. Yes, you think there are three driving forces behind this new development concept, as President Xi calls it, Uh, ideology, demographics and decoupling. Now, can you expand on that for us, please? 
Yeah, the first thing to understand about Xi Jinping is that he is a Marxist-Leninist ideologue. Uh, people may find that surprising, so 35 or 40 years after Deng Xiaoping's revolution, that these folks still exist in China. Well, they do. And the yeah. 95 million uh, members strong uh, Chinese Communist Party, it's the medium through which they communicate significant political and policy change, um, as it were, within the family. And what we've seen really since the 19th Party Congress in 2017 is a change in the way in which China's Communist Party defines its central mission, away from simply economic growth at all costs, to a new mission which is about China becoming much more self-reliant in the world and China at the same time are wanting to bring more socialism into the way in which it distributes wealth. Now, these are significant changes in the economic policy settings driven by ideology. Yes, and so the demographics interested me too. Tell us why that's apparently troubling them. Part of the mission for the Chinese Communist Party remains a national one. It's about national strengthening and national self-reliance. And the other part, of course, is the Marxist component, which is about equality. On the nationalist front, uh, what Xi Jinping and the leadership are concerned about is one of the underpinnings of China's national economic strength through the mid-century is its population. China's workforce uh, peaked in terms of its overall size in 2014. The demographers tell us that China's overall population may well have peaked in 2020. And therefore, the fear on part of China's leadership is that it becomes old, that is the country, before it becomes rich and powerful. And so therefore, a number of the measures that we've seen taken in recent months in China uh, within the economy and uh, trying to distribute uh, wealth more evenly, to cut back on uh, these huge expenses in the private education sector have all been about providing greater per capita income for working families to have more kids. And then that leads to this decoupling, which, of course, that's so much the antithesis, is it not, of Deng Xiaoping's whole approach? Yeah, remember the aphorism for Deng Xiaoping's period in office, uh, Geraldine, which was reform and opening. Four simple characters, gai ge, kai fang. And it summarised an entire era, reform at home within the economy, which meant more market-oriented reforms, and kai fang, opening, meaning opening to the outside world. That has been now replaced by what Xi Jinping calls his new development concept, and part of it is this rehabilitation of almost an old cultural revolution phrase, which is called national self-reliance, or zili gengsheng. And we see this now written much more comprehensively in the Chinese official literature. And it is a significant departure. Of course, on decoupling, what Xi Jinping's concerned about is making his country resilient from the application of external economic leverage on China such as uh, the Trump administration sought to achieve during the trade war of 2019-2020. So is it a sort of massive comment then on the way in which China has been adapting or adopting capitalism? I mean, that's what I am intrigued by. Is he saying, I don't like the way this is going in China? Or is he saying we can do this in particularly Chinese ways? He's saying a combination of, the, of both, uh, Geraldine. It's interesting the way in which Chinese Communist Party leaders try to periodise their modern history. And what Xi Jinping has done in very recent times is say that there are three periods 
in China's 20th century, 21st century history. The Mao period, where China finally stood up, Zhang Jilai. The Deng period, where China finally became wealthy, Fu Jilai. And now under Xi Jinping, the catch cry is, it's the time when China becomes strong, Chiang Jilai. And in this new period, since the 19th Party Congress in 2017, it's this new nationalist objective, but also emerging this parallel new socialist objective, which is to inject a whole new set of qualifications on the earlier liberal capitalist model uh, that Deng Xiaoping and his successors had in place for the better part of 35 years. And he thinks that can be done, does he? Like, that's economic populism, some have called it, which is what they were saying Trump was trying to do as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a bit of an open book as to whether it's actually doable in the, in the current digital revolutionary times, isn't it? Well, this is the $6,000 question because Xi Jinping's comfort zones, that is, the things that he knows best, are politics, ideology, security, intelligence and the military. What are not his strong points are finance, the economy, markets, etc. So therefore, whereas all that I've just described, Geraldine, may make a lot of sense from a purely political and ideological lens, the bottom line is there is a lot of scepticism in the country and now in international markets about whether this shift to the left in the Chinese domestic economic model is going to in fact lead to much lower levels of economic growth and as a result, less prosperity. And if that happens, then there's also a parallel legitimacy question which emerges for the Chinese Communist Party because the party's traditional legitimacy in the period since the Cultural Revolution has depended on everyone becoming wealthier, mm. liberating people from poverty. But if the wealth now is no longer generated along similar lines of increase and orders of magnitude, the one card left to play is the nationalist card, hence why I said before, moving the economy to the left and nationalism to the right. And of course, that's the whole point about the modern economy. Leaders have to learn as they go slightly and it's messy. I mean, Evergrande, is Evergrande an example of this, which it looks like there's going to be some sort of bailout at some level, but there's going to be tremendous casualties, aren't there, from Evergrande? Yeah, when we try to conceptualise what's happening with uh, Evergrande at the moment, it doesn't quite fit into any of the boxes that I've just described. This is about long-term systemic financial risk. That's where Evergrande comes into the play. And to be frank, this systemic financial risk predates these uh, shifts in ideology that we've been discussing so far. Uh, and they've been around really in the Chinese system since China's massive bailout of its economy uh, at the time of the global financial crisis. And what's your reading of the Chinese populace and their take on this shift? Because some of them are writing very interestingly. They, they're, they're grasping that something pretty big is underway. Do they like where he's going? Well, the country is divided. There are still, uh, you may be surprised to know, a bunch of people in China who you would describe as Mao Zedong, Communist Party, almost cultural revolution nostalgiacs who believe, a bit like um, those who were left over from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, that things were a lot better back then. So they exist, but they're also having a growth in numbers because Mao, apart from the ideology of socialism, which is less popular, is certainly associated with Chinese nationalism. 
And as a consequence, this movement to the left is being reinforced by this nationalist sentiment. The people who have deep scepticism, of course, are the business community. Mm. And private business now represents 60% of GDP. I would not be surprised, given these shifts in economic policy direction, that China's overall economic growth numbers begin to taper off. Uh, I mean, it sounds like it's risky for him. I I want to quote Alan Kohler who is an economic uh, correspondent, as you know, wrote in in his characteristically blunt way in the New Daily, um, submarines, which is our story, are a side issue on the never-never. America won the Cold War against Russia, not on the military battlefield, but on the battlefield of ideas. East Germans overran the Berlin Wall because they wanted the freedoms that West Germans had, as did the Russians. The contest with China, into which we've now leapt on the side of America, will likely end the same way, and on that score, China is shooting itself in the foot. What's your verdict on that? Well, that is a very choleresque expression. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I'll, I'll try and add just a little bit more nuance, uh, though we all know and love Alan, and he's often right. But those of us who's full-time professions are spent in analysing the entrails of Chinese domestic politics, the economy, society and what it does in the world. We are all, like Alan, but perhaps less decisively so, scratching our heads as to how this folds into Xi Jinping's political strategy for re-election at the end of 2020, but more broadly how it folds into the ideological struggle which China now sees itself engaged uh, with um, the United States and uh, the rest of the global democratic world. In other words, if his new development concept, this new form of socialism with Chinese characteristics, if it doesn't actually bring home the bacon, then you've got a problem in terms of the efficacy of the model, particularly when the political wing of this model, which is further levels of domestic political repression, are taken into account as well. So the Kohler thesis may well prove to be right. It's early days yet, uh, but uh, many of us are scratching our heads in terms of how this fits into China's domestic political agenda and how it fits into China's long-term foreign policy agenda. Yeah, just very quickly, it's just that decoupling thesis of yours seems to fly in the face of the CPTPP, that frightful acronym, uh, the F that they've applied to join. So where does that fit in? Uh, great question. And uh, I still call it the TPP because it's only called that unpronounceable acronym because of the progressive instincts of Justin Trudeau. <laughs> we wanted to have a comprehensive and progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, where does it fit? China's view, and if you read the literature carefully about what's called the dual circulation economy, part of the new development concept proposal, is kind of along these lines. Our future economic growth as China, given we have an adverse external environment with the United States in it, uh, has to be primarily now domestically driven by domestic demand. But secondly, um, the other part of the dual circulation, which is external circulation, says this. We'll still be engaged with import and export activity, but not to the extent that it will cause us to be dependent on it. But there's a further advantage for China, given the scale of its domestic market and and therefore the range of countries wanting to still export into that market, uh, then we actually as China have an opportunity to obtain a further level of economic leverage towards all those countries as well. Um, And that in the internal literature is, I think, how they rationalised this application to join the TPP. And the Americans, at the end of the day, are not in it. Silly fools that they are. Yeah. 
Fascinating development. Uh, look, thank you very much indeed, Kevin, for joining us. Happy to be with you, um, Geraldine, and all the best. Well, that was the former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, who's also the global president of the Asia Society. Well, now let me welcome Yun Chung and Chris Buckley. Welcome to you both. Uh, good Hello, to be really here. good to be here. Now, I'm interested to hear your responses to Mr Rudd's analysis. What do you think, Yun? Do you agree that it is effectively an end to the Deng Xiaoping era of reform? Well, yes, the history is always the degree of continuity and some change. So Kevin Rudd is quite right. There is a great uh, ideological aspect to it, but there's also other things other than ideology. There are some common threads bringing all this together. So one of them is government intervention, including a focus on inequality under the heading of common prosperity. Another one is on tightening ideological education and control. But it's, I think it's also important to look at the regulation of each sector separately, which I won't do right now, but if we have time, we can come back to this. Could, um, could I just I ask you, before, before yep. you, how bad is inequality in China at the moment? China is supposedly a socialist country working towards communism. And yet inequality in China right now is worse than in many um, capitalist countries that it criticises. Now, one of Deng Xiaoping's famous saying when he was arguing for reform and opening up is, let some people and some regions get rich first. That's almost sounds a bit like trickle-down economics. Mm. And over the last three decades, some people got extravagantly rich. Well, the poor also got richer. The disparity has really grown. And so for a lot of poor people and young people, they have become disheartened and then they believe the game is really stacked against them. And some nostalgic people now arguing for true communism under Mao. But the one thing we need to remember is that this development trajectory is not unique to China. It's similar to many countries that have undergone industrialization. So we can think back to the Gilded Age in the United States or the Dickinsonian times during England. Mm. So while we can look at China's development through an ideological Marxist-Leninist lens, we can also see that its development is just a normal economic industrialization development. Yes, this doesn't feel like the New Deal, though. I see, I see what you're getting at. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it feels very interventionist in a way that, of course, we haven't been going through in the West. So, Chris, I wonder how you see Kevin Rudd's sense that these are pretty significant shifts that we need to understand. Uh, there certainly are significant shifts underway, but I, I differ a little from how things were described um, in Mr. Rudd's interview. You know, the the big theme in China over the past couple of months has been this idea of common prosperity, this idea that suggests that China needs to become a more equal society. Uh, The reason why I say there's some uncertainty about that is that at the same time as enunciating this goal, uh, Xi Jinping and other officials have also sometimes emphasised that this is a longer-term objective as well. So, you know, while there's a great deal of attention and interest on how these policies are going to come together, uh, the party leadership itself has been trying to hold back some of the excitement or some of the anxiety about this by saying it's a longer-term goal, it's going to be incremental. And they've also been saying that we don't want to stifle or scare off the entrepreneurial spirit either. Now, you could say lately they haven't been doing a very good job at that, but that's that's the messiness and uncertainty of politics when you introduce these big promises and people, including officials, are uncertain about how fast things are going to change, 
and how far things are going to change as well. Look, the former director of the um, research section of the OECD, Adrian Blundell-Wignall, who's an Australian, wrote a very interesting piece in the Fin Review last month, which I found uh, said, said more than a lot of people, trying to work out what the heck is going on, um, suggesting that this crackdown on tech in China goes to the heart of the question of who China wants to be. Uh, is it a country swinging towards what you do in your leisure time or the global winner in technology and productivity growth? You know, in other words, sort of saying, well, has China got a Microsoft? No, it hasn't. So all those other major developments, they're about consumer-facing, they're about leisure, they're about, you know, I mean, hedonism in a sense. Do you think there's something in this that she has said, we're not going to get great on that? I think that the crackdown on companies that we've seen recently is sort of a convergence of these broader political trends, but also two very specific concerns as well. I think it is true that in China there has been more regulatory attention on companies using their enormous power and their enormous reservoirs of information, if not for outright price gouging, than to take advantage of consumers. And although China's application of its anti-trust laws is very selective and doesn't hit the state sector, uh, nonetheless, I do think the government wants to show that it's on its toes here. I think the other side of it too is, is as you say, though, Geraldine, this ethos in China that we need to be spending our money and applying our talent to less frivolous parts of the economy, if I could put it that way. And at a time of growing geopolitical competition, at a time when China wants to claim the commanding heights of you know, producing its own semiconductors, of leading the way in artificial intelligence and so on, it would be a good thing if these companies stuck to their tracks and applied more of their, their money and innovation to what the party sees as, as I said, the commanding heights of, of where the global economy is headed. I can think of a few people who run reserve banks and treasuries <laughs> thinking the same thing here, Yun. Uh, what's your take on that idea about trying to really develop sort of Silicon Valley on steroids, as I heard it? <laughs> so, yeah, I fully agree with uh uh, Chris's assessment, um, specifically in technology and on the regulation of technology platforms. I think it's also important to remember that uh, China is doing a lot of things on, for example, data security, personal information protection, and is proposing uh, regulating algorithms. Now, those concerns, those concerns about you know privacy, about data, about competition, the power of technology platforms is not just uh, limited to China. That's a worldwide concern. But what is unique about China, of course, it is an authoritarian country. It is a, it does reach for regulation, you know, harsher crackdowns mm. more instinctively. Um, so what we're seeing is, although it is trying to, you know, regulate as a, a normal non-authoritarian country, it is also using that to try to align it with its ideological values. So, for example, the proposed algorithm regulation, it talks about, you know, dealing with presenting information that must align with what it calls mainstream values, that is values that actually promote the CCP. So this is very interventionist, you know, like I wonder uh, if you've let the cat out of the bag and you've got a whole lot of people enjoying their games and enjoying their choices and then you suddenly sort of put them back into a box, is this, is, is that going to work, Yun? Yeah, I think, look, what their approach is basically a form of paternalism. It's enforcing social norms. Basically, the motivation behind that is that it, 
the CCP believe that individuals and families, they cannot be trusted, that, that the party has to guide individuals and families to a certain values. And part of the reason for that is actually to do with demography. Um, it's promoting traditional family values in order to increase birth rate as well. And that has a lot of implications for, you know, uh, people with different gender expressions. It's also cracking down on LGBT communities and feminist groups. So it's, it is attempting to legislating morality. This is very, very uh, interventionist, much more than what we are used to. But it also has some level of support amongst the communities, especially, you know, in terms of celebrity fan cultures, in terms of gaming. It is actually popular among, say, adults of children. Yes, but it's oppressive, isn't it? Oh, certainly, certainly, yes. Look, I just want to end with, uh, because it hasn't had the attention it deserves, I don't think, that on Tuesday, after uh, President Biden addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations, President Xi Jinping addressed the Council. They weren't expecting that, as I read it, in the wake of the announcement of the AUKUS agreement. I want to play a bit of that address. Recent developments in the international situation show once again that military intervention from the outside and so-called democratic transformation entail nothing but harm. We need to advocate peace, development, equity, justice, democracy and freedom, which are the common values of humanity, and reject the practice of forming small circles or zero-sum games. So, Chris, how did you read that address? You know, what what was he trying to achieve? Well, uh, Xi Jinping is certainly not the only world leader who puts his shiniest happy face forward for these international forums. I'm not saying that's entirely disingenuous, but nonetheless, he was very much emphasising China as a benign partner in the region and across the world. And, of course, he, he did underline that by this you know, most substantive announcement that China is going to stop building coal-fired power plants in the rest of the world. So I, I think that was the underlying intent. I, I did want to just add something about Yun Zhang's comments about domestic policy as well. I think it's helpful to understand what's happening recently to remember that the, the Chinese government, Xi Jinping, are coming out of COVID with a great sense of vindication that their extremely powerful mobilising model for dealing with COVID has been proven right by the experience of the past two years. And I think there's this sort of ethos now that when the government gets behind a job, we can get things done, spreading more so than before into other areas of policy. And look, I just couldn't, we couldn't go without mentioning their reaction to both AUKUS and the Quad. I mean, the Quad meeting is very significant um, uh, happening this weekend. Just a quick response from you, Yun, just how you think that is being read in Beijing? So I think from Beijing's perspective, um, it didn't really change that much in that it has already placed Australia firmly in the US anti-China camp from Beijing's perspective. But it is to Beijing, it's a sign that the countries are getting together to trying to contain it. However, Which is a very, that very, very powerful word in foreign policy, the word contain as opposed to constrain. Yes, that's right. I think uh, from Beijing's perspective, other countries are trying to contain it, very much so. But I think there's a different ways to look at this. From China, China is very much focused on economics, you know. Um, it's talking about CPTPP, it's Belt and Road Initiative, and it's, uh, you know, using trade as a form of coercion on Australia. But the deals that Australia has been focused on so far seems to be in the military sphere. So it seems that we are 
focused on different issues. That is a very interesting observation and I wonder what, uh, how it affects then the discussion about the Port of Darwin lease, about which apparently the Morrison government ministers are divided. Yes, I, I do think that the Chinese government at least feels stung and anxious about the AUKUS agreement and the submarines. Uh, we haven't seen them take any concrete steps so far, but I think they're going to reserve any actions they take to unilateral action against Australia. And the occasion for that may be if, I guess, as, as seems fairly likely or quite possible, the Australian government decides to cancel the lease on this um, port facility in Darwin. That's a wicked problem if ever there was one for the government to sort out. Uh, look, thank you both very much for those sort of observations and ability to speculate on this most fascinating set of developments. Yun Chung and Chris Buckley, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yun Chung from the ANU's China Policy Centre and Chris Buckley uh, from the New York Times and before that, uh, Kevin Rudd, now President of the Asia Society. Tomorrow's Sunday Extra will explore how Australia's undermined France's strategic aspirations in the Indo-Pacific. Julian Morrow will be speaking to a foreign affair regular, Hervé Lemahieu, Director of Research at the Lowy Institute, because that's another very interesting side uh, well, you know, development may slightly to the side of this. Well, up next, a look at Australia's relationship with the Pacific and how the influence goes both ways. Yes, uh, maybe many of us really fully engaged in quite some ways with that ter- with the Pacific, with that terrific series hosted by Sam Neill uh, about the Pacific in the wake of Captain Cook's arrival. I'm going to introduce you now to a history that covers Australia's relationship with the region over a much longer time period. And look, it's complicated. We have united and devastated, liberated and disempowered according to the historian uh, Ian Hoskins, who's devoted years to charting the remarkable full story, you might say, the continent shifting that put Australia on the Pacific Rim five million years ago, to the coming of humans, the first Australians and much later Pacific Islanders, all the way to the issue of contemporary climate change threatening the existence of some island states. Australia's changed the region, certainly, he summarises, but the Pacific has changed Australia as well. Ian Hoskins, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Geraldine. Thank you. This is a long way from the last time I talked to you, which was about Australia's rivers. Yeah, I, I guess they're both watery, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it is, it is quite different. And, and this is much more related to my earlier works, a history of Sydney Harbour and a history of the New South Wales coast. Lots of questions emerged in those books that I I was lucky enough to be able to pursue in this one. Yes, and I know that you do consider this a bit of your magnum opus because really you've alerted me to the fact that we don't celebrate or even mark our history in the Pacific as properly as it ought to be, you suggest. There's a national amnesia about it, as you put it. Now, is that what you've set out to rectify in this book? Oh, I have, without without wanting to... um be pompous and take on that role and I'm going to answer all the questions. But there's there's a gap in the literature without a doubt. That said, there's been lots of wonderful writing, mainly in journal articles and books that deal with issues um, relating to the Pacific. Uh, Dorothy Scheinberg wrote a really fantastic book on the sandalwood trade in the early 19th century. I mean, she wrote that in the late 60s. Uh, Works like that I um, have been really important for me, but there's been none that 
addresses it wholeheartedly. And I've been aware of Sean Dorney's often um, remarked upon. <laughs> um, it was the ABC's well, he's, he's, veteran correspondent in PNG. Quite right. Mm. He, he several times lamented at how little Australia considers the Pacific, and 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 ever less so as the um, Radio Australia was cut back and all mm. the rest. And he was no longer the Pacific correspondent. Um, that amnesia extends back a bit further than that, but. I, I wanted to investigate it and, and various things prompted that. And you certainly bring alive the history of European encounters in the Pacific from explorers to colonisers to traders. Um, Australia, once established by the English, became a power in the region, but there was considerable tension in that role, wasn't there? Not just literally, but also existentially. Indeed. Yeah, so I'm, I'm fascinated um, by the impact of the Enlightenment and Christianity on Australia, and I know people have touched on that, the Manning Clark, not not least among them, in the past. But it's become so pertinent recently. This book was written, as I point out in the introduction, during Donald Trump's presidency. So if ever Christianity and the Enlightenment were, were on the line, it was during that sort of disastrous four years. You know, wondering what had been achieved after all those years. And it made me reflect on the way that white Australians related to their non-white neighbours, and indeed Indigenous Australians too. And and it's it's a history of lots of bad behaviour, as one might expect. And there's the White Australia policy, and there's the Pacific Island Labourers Act of 1901, which is the other um, less remarked upon um, side of the White Australia policy, which resulted in the deportation of thousands of Pacific Islanders who had helped establish the sugar industry in, mm. in North Queensland. That's awful because they're defining Australia as white and these people don't belong. But in that long history of, of problematic acts were any number of um, acts and um, utterances that suggested that colonial Australians and then white Australians after 1901 regarded the Pacific um, and the people there as their brothers and sisters and part of a common humanity, whether they were looking at it through the lens of the Enlightenment or Christianity, in the, which is particularly the case with the missionaries, who were critiquing blackbirding, which was regarded as a form of colonial slavery in the late 19th century. I just found that really worth remarking upon because it's a proud history, you know, and I well, was you, you, what you do is you, you bring up quite a lot of the debates that occurred. So I think sometimes in our look back at history, it looks very linear. And you make the point that actually in various ways, um, and particularly about attitudes to the Pacific, uh, there were really very lively debates. There, there were indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the language was quite forceful. I mean, when, when those islanders were deported in 1907, there were various regional newspapers and several of them from Queensland that said, this is not how civilised nations act. You know, we don't send people away. And they were being sent back to islands where they had no place anymore because they'd been gone for so long. Mm. So the, the, the realisation of that and the, and the willingness to critique the government at the height of white Australia it was only it was less than a decade old. So without a doubt, the, the dominant feeling in Australia, it was for a white nation, but there are all these other countercurrents, all these counter narratives and other voices that are worth really now, pointing out. 
your point is that Australia changed the region, but that the Pacific also changed Australia. And you raise the issue of Eddie Marbo and his garden plot on the Torres Strait oh, yes. Island of yeah. Mare. And that yeah. tending of a specific plot was a, instrumental in the overturning of the idea of terra nullius. So, I mean, really just profoundly important um, in, in Australian history. Tell us more, please. Yeah, well, I, I haven't heard anyone else refer to it in that way. So, I, um, I mean, that's, that's the thought that occurred to me. Mm. Eddie Marbo, as I understand it, was um, given the confidence to pursue that case, along with others on, on Murr, because he really believed he owned that plot of land because they have a different sense of um, ownership and garden cultivation, horticulture on Murr, which is very much, which is similar to that in um, Melanesian islands and in Polynesia. So it's a Pacific form of, of gardening and, and tenure. He was given heart by Henry Reynolds and Noel Luce, who he met up at... Um, Cooktown University, uh, and then took on that case and he believed that he owned that land and indeed um, the High Court said, well, yes, you do. It was a long and protracted case. I didn't realise quite how long and protracted and convoluted, but I've tried to lay that out clearly. Um, whereas the, the, um, the various attempts on the mainland by Aboriginal people to claim native title, the term wasn't used then, had been turned down because their relationship to the land hadn't been understood clearly enough. And, of course, once Eddie Marbo wins, he's dead, unfortunately, um, by the time mm, the um, just, the case just is decided. It. Just, mm. just, it's awful. But the, the case is known after him, uh, is named after him. Um, he wins and then native title is granted to all. So it's that, it's that form of tenure that Europeans can clearly understand gardening, something that um, Europeans had a relation to and a long history of when they when they rolled up um, to Australia. Um, they're, they're able then to apply it to um, to other Aboriginal Australians. Yes, and he, he himself actually emphasised the difference, you remind me, between island and mainland planting and harvesting practices as, as he began this campaign. And, of course, that's a terribly pertinent uh, discussion about, you know, the nature of ancient practices, which I'm hoping we can cover before the end of the year here on Saturday Extra. It's a very live yeah. debate. Yeah, so I, I and you're probably referring to Bruce Pascoe. I am, yes. Yeah, and I, and I touch and on the that too. Because, too. Yeah, in the aftermath, because I, I I don't find that a compelling thesis, to be honest. And I'm not. That's just just the thesis. That's all. I'm not questioning um, his right to speak as a Indigenous Australian by any means. But the rejection of hunter gatherer as a term just seems to be a bit of a polemic. It's not um, borne out by the. The evidence and it dilutes the difference between mainland relationship to the land and an islander relationship to the land, whether they be Torres Strait, Melanesian, or or Polynesian. And that it's important to emphasise that I think. And and then the Marbo decision comes down, and I thought, goodness me, you know how how pertinent, what a gift mm. from the Pacific to Australia that is. Look, you do draw attention to certain characters in Australia's early naval presence in the Pacific, in, in particular Commodore James Goodenough uh, for yes. his uh, anti-slavery stance. Now, why was he such a standout figure for you? Well, <laughs> I'm pretty familiar with his grave, um, which is in Crow's Nest, a little... A little in, in New South Wales, in the just suburb, suburb of Sydney. Yeah, yeah, so it's a... It's just a, a lower North Shore suburb of Sydney for those who, who don't live in Sydney. And there was a cemetery established there, the first on the North Shore back in 1845. 
1875, James Goodenough is buried there and thousands of people in this colony, possibly even as many as 10,000 people, thousands of people gathered to see James Goodenough off. He was the Commodore of the Australia Station. The Australia Station was the Royal Navy Station in the Western Pacific that was the base for the projection of power into the Pacific on the part of the the British. And he is the, the epitome of the Victorian officer gentleman. And he's also a very devout Christian. And I found very moving. He's he's hit by a poisoned arrow and he's there because of all the tension and distrust and violence in the wake of blackbirding. That's mm. why he's up there. There'd been a, an attack on another naval vessel, the Sandfly. Um, he gets hit. He dies. He gets tetanus. He gets tetanus and dies on the way home, yet addresses his crew and says, please don't take out any reprisals on these people. And I thought, That's what, a, what a thing to do. There were reprisals when there, there was violence um, and some of them awful reprisals, but he specifically said, don't do that, and he forgave them. You know, he understood the context. And that's something, again, we don't often appreciate that people at the time did sometimes understand the context, the bigger ethical, moral context of what they were doing. But they didn't when they were, well, you could argue this, uh, the example of Nauru was interesting. (laughs) The geological uniqueness of certain... (laughs) There's the the other side of it. (laughs) Certainly played a role in making us the lucky country, Donald Horne's description, maybe to the island's own detriment. So, you know, there's Nauru rich in phosphate that Australia desperately needed to fertilise our ancient soil. So tell us your verdict there. Yeah, there's the other side of it. There's... there's, um, white, white people behaving badly, if ever there were. Um, so it, it, Nauru is such an interesting counter because Australia is this great, flat, ancient land replete with mineral, mineral wealth that was formed millions and millions of years ago down when we were part of Gondwana. Um, and it slowly drifts up to the edge of the Pacific, as, as you indicated in the introduction, you know, five million years ago. There's Nauru, which pops up as an oceanic island, um, part of a seamount, um, craggy, tops and and birds defecate all over it because it's part of their migration Mm. routes or they're living there. And so that's their mineral wealth is brought there by birds, you know, so there's a very different origin there. And yes, for the for the vast ancient soils of Australia, the the phosphate that comes from the superphosphate from the the bird droppings on Nauru is just um, so important for growing our crops and the wide brown land that that we become. And and of course, once that's depleted by the, it's well on the way to being depleted by the nineteen seventies, eighties, and nineties. You know, what what do they have to sell? But their their place as a far flung island as a and as an exile for um, place of exile for uh, asylum seekers for who, refugees. Yeah, for refugees. Yeah, yeah. And of course, and of course, a lot of that money was, you know, as you said, it was sort of wasted. Really, that they did earn a lot, but it wasn't. Um, you know, they didn't have a sovereign wealth fund, did they? No, they they didn't, and and that's part of the tragedy of that story. I mean, that there is one of the outcomes of colonisation. Yes, you know, theoretically compensation was paid, particularly through the seventies, eighties, but there was no governance structure there to properly manage that, and that's really awful. I mean, a, a, just a terrible outcome. They things are not quite as bleak as they were a little while ago, as I understand it anyway, because there's a coalition of island states that are better able to manage mm-hmm. their fisheries. So there's some income from fisheries now. But um, having to rely upon taking in asylum seekers and, and I end there's a chapter also on the 
the awfully named Pacific Solution, for goodness sake. Look, let's just finalise with the present day and China's increasing influence in the Western Pacific, which led directly to Australia's step-up program, uh, which yeah. I think Sean Dorney said, well, thank goodness for the Chinese, um, where, where the Australian government is now much more attentive to the region than it had been. How do you see this playing out, Ian? Well, I'm, I'm a little unimpressed by the way that the Pacific is our family when it suits us to be and, and not when it doesn't. And the obvious example of that is um, Scott Morrison's uh, visit to Tuvalu, I think, in 2019, shortly after the the, um, the election, where he was asked about climate change, having earlier said that the Pacific are our family in the context of step-ups. And he said, well, I answer to the Australian people when it comes to climate change. And he'd just been given a mandate for continuing to, to mine coal. I mean, that was the, the outcome of that election. So we have a very ambivalent relationship to those close neighbours. And um, it, it would be good if we had earlier addressed their long-standing concerns. And people have been from the Pacific have been telling us for a long time that their islands are slowly um, not sinking, but just being drowned. If we'd taken that seriously, not joked about it as some people did, and then we'd be in a better position to be the, the big brother, as they often refer to Australia, we would be in a better position to counteract the, the influence of China, I suspect. You know, it's a, it's mm. a bit of a fair weather friend. There, there was a quote from um, one of the clerics in Fiji who referred to Scott Morrison as a fellow man of faith, but as a, as representative of Australia being a prodigal son. And I thought that was very <laughs> oh, that telling. Is and, yeah. And, and it, that was in the context of climate. Quite It wasn't anything else. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, look, uh, thank you, Ian. And uh, that's a real contribution. I know it's taken a lot from you, uh, but thank you very much indeed for just explaining it all for us. Thank you, Geraldine. Thanks for your interest. Ian Hoskins, the author of Australia and the Pacific. It's a New South production. And remember his lovely one he was on before with uh, Rivers, the lifeblood of Australia, published last October. That is glorious to look at too. You've been listening to Extra. Join me, please, at the same time next week as we bring you more of our international coverage or online via the ABC website or the ABC Listen app. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.